You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. It is a joy to be able to open God's Word uh, with you today. And uh, I just want to invite you, if you have your Bible with you today, uh, open it up to uh, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, um, please put up your hand. We've got ushers coming down. They'd love to get a copy of God's Word to you. And as we always say, if you don't have a Bible at home, take it. Okay, it's good for you to have it. It's not stealing. It's quite all right. It would be our gift to you. Um, so Mark chapter four this morning, and we're going to continue on in our series, Vintage Jesus. And today we are going to look at a very well-known text to us. Um, chances are if we grew up in church or if we grew up going to a wanna club or any kids club of any kind at all, or were around anyone who uh, knew the Lord, we probably have heard this story and we've probably heard it many times, and so today, I really am praying that the Lord would take this very common and well-known story and press it into our hearts, because it is a vastly different thing to understand the Word of God up here than it is to have the Word of God penetrating right here and then coming out um, through your life. I always think of it this way. It comes into my head, and it kind of sits there for a while, and then God begins to press it into my heart, and then it really doesn't become real in my life until I have to walk through it, until God forces it under my feet, and you walk in it every single day, and then the Word of God really takes root. And I'm praying that He would do that here today as we're in uh, Mark 4. I think most of you are there with me already. As we start in this morning, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, what is it in life, what is it in life that causes you to fear? Maybe you're like, well, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, that's not true, um, for sure. Maybe you're not looking hard enough. Um, What is it in life that causes you worry and stress and anxiety? What is it in life that causes you to be overwhelmed? What is it in life that causes your world to go dark, so to speak? Maybe it could be a lot of different things. But in reality, the storms of life come, don't they? Wouldn't it be nice in some ways if we could just opt out of those, you know, just somehow just um, take a pass on those? I, th- I think many of us in our, in our flesh would say absolutely, but many of us in our experience would say, though I wouldn't ever want to walk through that again, I wouldn't trade it for the world because of what God did in me. That's a hard reality. That's the difference, though, between understanding the Word of God here or even getting it here. That's when the Word of God gets underneath your feet. That's when you begin to live it. And I'm praying that the Lord would take this text this morning and that he would begin uh, to do that in our lives. And so let's dive right into it here. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 35 and read down uh, through verse 41. And uh, this is the account of Jesus calming the storm. Now, earlier in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus do incredible things, haven't we? Jesus has cast out demons. He's exercised his power over the demonic realm. Jesus has healed disease. 
It's incredible. But now here, Jesus shows his tremendous authority and power over natural disaster. Let this grip you as you read it. This is not just a Bible story. This is who Jesus Christ is. And this is awesome. And so let's hear it from God's word. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. What an awesome text about the glory of Jesus and the power of Jesus. I want to just kind of set the scene for us here a little bit. Um, The disciples, they're there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is teaching the crowds, as, as we heard last week, through many parables. And it's seems to be a very full day of teaching, and it, and it seems that Jesus is out in the boat. He's in the boat, teaching from the boat to the people on shore because they were pressing in around him. And noticed in the text, it says that he says to the disciples, let's go, let's go to the other side. And it says that he went just as he was. Probably Jesus didn't even take the boat back and get onto the shore. They probably just lifted anchor and headed across the sea. Now the Sea of Galilee, you may know, um, is quite large, quite large. It's about 19 a kilometers long, about 12 kilometers wide. Now, we would believe that they are at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, okay? At the north end of the Sea of Galilee, you can see it up there on the screen. And so they're going to be crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, we don't know exactly how wide it is at this point because we don't know exactly where they were, but presumably, it was probably somewhere between 12 and 6 kilometers wide. That's big, okay? That's um, 12 kilometers is... Lake Erie, basically from Port Colborne across to Dunkirk, okay? That's, that's a long way. If you've ever been out there before, um, you get out in the middle and you can hardly see the shore on one side and hardly see the shore on the other side. And if you've ever had the pleasure of being on uh, Lake Erie when a storm whips up, um, wow, that will breed a new kind of fear in your heart real fast. And I've been out there walleye fishing before, and all of a sudden you see a little ripple, and next thing you know, it's one footer, two footer, and then uh, with, by the time you're heading to shore, there's five foot, six foot waves uh, coming in, threatening to take down your little boat. And so this is the scene that the disciples uh, find themselves in. Now, they're not in a motorboat, okay? They're not in a large boat. Uh, they're in quite a small boat, in fact, um, a, a small a Galilean fishing boat, uh, a boat that is probably not much bigger, if even 25 feet long, maybe seven feet wide, maybe four and a half feet tall, uh, with a sail in the center. And I think that we have a picture of that. Maybe we can bring that up onto the screen maybe a little boat like this, a boat that was maybe big enough to fit 15 people. Now imagine, 
You're out sailing across a big lake, a sea, and a storm whips up, and you're in a little wooden dinghy with a little flimsy sail. Terror. Terror is what you feel in your heart because no matter how much you row, no matter what you do, there is nothing that you can do to stop this storm that is coming. And so that's where the disciples are. I want you to notice something, though. This is going to be really important to us later on, and I just want to kind of hint at it right now so that we see it. Notice in the middle of the storm what Jesus is doing. He's sleeping. Just, just hang that thought in your head, okay? Just, just hang it there. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In the storm, he's asleep. That is awesome. Here's the first thing that I really want us to see today. Uh, the first point in this message um, comes right out of the beginning of this text. God knows the plan. God knows the plan for our lives even when it is hidden from us. We've got to get this because it's included right in this passage so clearly. Let's bring, there we go, it's up on the screen now. God knows the plan even when it's hidden from us. Okay, we see that Jesus is the one that initiates the journey across the sea. It's not the disciples who say to Jesus, hey, you know, we should go to the other side because there's a lot of people here. Uh, maybe it'd be a good idea. And Jesus is like, ah, it's not good to sail on the Sea of Galilee at night, but okay, let's do it. It's not like that. Jesus initiates the plan. Jesus knows the plan, okay? He knows and foreknows what is going to happen as they go to cross the sea at night. Now, any Galilean fisherman would know it is not a good idea to be out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at night, specifically. Why? Because the warm air from the desert coming down, it would rush down the slopes of the mountain and it would come across this plateau and across the desert. And as that air is cooling, meeting the warm air that's rising off the lake, storms were particularly worst in the evening or at night. But notice this. What does Jesus say to do? Guys, let's cross. Let's cross to the other side at night. Let's go. Let's go right now. And so they begin to cross to the other side. They set out in the boat at night. Everything seems to be going fine. We don't really read much of it, but all of a sudden this storm begins to arise. Now I just really want us to catch this. God knows the plan. He charts the course for our lives. Just as he led the disciples to cross the sea at night. Listen, God's not figuring out our lives as he goes. Now, this is a reason for incredible hope for me. I hope it's a reason for incredible hope for you, too. We just sung moments ago that God is sovereign, that even in the storms of life, even in the trials of life, he's sovereign. He sets the course. He charts the path. You just think about that for a second. Think about how much hope there is just in the thought that God is sovereign. If God's not sovereign, we have a lot of reason to fear, don't we? If God's not in control, if God doesn't know the plan, we have a great reason to be terrified. But if he is in control and he does know the plan, we have a great reason for hope, don't we? That there will be trials in this life. Doesn't mean there won't be. There will be. We're going to see that. But he's still in control. That is an awesome truth to get underneath your feet. And if you can come to trust in that and joyfully trust in that, the Lord will bless you in it. I want you to see this. He knows the plan. He knows the plan for our lives even when it's hidden from us. 
How often do the things that we walk through in this life make no sense to us whatsoever? Most of the time. Most of the time, we rarely ever enter into a trial and say, oh, this is exactly what the Lord is going to produce in me a year and a half from now, do we? This, this is the destination where he's going to get me to. We might glimpse at things of, okay, the Lord's trying to make me more patient. He's trying to make me um, more um, long-suffering um, to grow me in endurance, but, but we don't see the whole picture. And so often when we are right there, on the cusp of the storm, before the storm begins, but we see it brewing on the horizon, when we are there in that moment, we tremble, don't we? Have you ever noticed that in your life? That there is probably more anxiety and worry and stress when you see the storm coming and can't get out of its way than when it actually arrives? I've noticed that in my life. Mark that. And then mark this, though. That God knows the plan, even when it's hidden from us. He's faithful in it, he's merciful in it, and he's good in it. And we are going to see this as we dig into this text a little bit further. That's the first thing that I want to see. I don't want to bank there. I, w- I want to move on beyond that because it's going to get fleshed out more later. But I really want to press this on you right now, uh, just this point, okay? This is a real story. It's a a real story. It's a real story about a real place, about a real event. It's real. It's not made up. It's a real story. And it has real, rich, incredible meaning and application for our lives. And so let's start to move towards some of that right now. Let's look down to verse 37 in our Bibles. They're on the sea, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. Okay, that little a Galilean fishing boat that's maybe, you know, four and a half foot high walls. The waves are big enough that they're breaking into the boat. Well, that's not such a problem. Just turn on the bilge pump, right? Wrong. Get a bucket, maybe, and start to throw the water over. But the only problem is the water's coming in faster than you can get it out. What do you do? The windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But catch this again. Where was Jesus? He was right there. He was, you know, leading the charge, right? He's bailing faster than anybody. No, he was asleep on the cushion. How did he get a cushion in the boat in the first place? That's an interesting question. I was like, did they have cushions? Was, was this just a boat that was covered with cushions? No, probably not. But the guy that would run the rudder would often sit on a cushion, apparently. Um, I didn't know that. I, I learned that. So Jesus steals. He didn't steal, okay? <laughs> borrows, borrows uh, the cushion from the rudder man and takes a nap before the storm starts. Now, he must be uh, completely out at this point. Um, just imagine a day where there is such a crowd and you're teaching them possibly from sunup till sundown all day long. And I don't think we can fully enter into this, okay? Um, those uh, teachers in the room uh, have some idea of it. But I just, as I think about this and I think about Jesus teaching the crowds all day long and the spiritual battle that must have been going on in those moments must have been absolutely exhausting. And there he is in the boat, Asleep on the cushion at the back of the boat. 
This is an awesome, awesome picture of Jesus' humanity, isn't it? You know, we, we, we catch in the Gospels incredible glimpses of his deity, and we're going to see that in a few moments, but here's a picture of his humanity. He's exhausted from the day, and he's sleeping, but not unintentionally. I believe it's fully intentional. I believe that Jesus is preparing the disciples for something that is absolutely going to blow them away, and not only blow them away, but going to be used later on to, to change the course of their lives. Notice what happens. He's asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, notice these words. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Here's the second thing that we've got to see this morning. Not only does God know the plan, he knows the plan, but God allows the storm. So it's not just that God knows the plan and sees the plan on the horizon. It's not just that, you know, God is all-knowing and can foresee the future. He allows the storm. He allows the storm to come to these disciples in this moment. He allows the storm into our lives. Well, why? Why would God do that? I thought God loved us. Yes, God loves you. That's why he allows the storm into your life, and he uses the storm to increase and to fortify your faith. He uses the storm in life to take that Bible knowledge that is stuck up here or maybe right here and to get it under your feet so that you can truly walk it and live it and it can be a rock and a hope to you. He uses the storm for those things. He uses the storm for this purpose in the disciples' lives right here in this passage. God allows the storm. God knows the plan. God allows the storm and he uses it to increase and to fortify our faith. Not only did he allow it, but remember, he was the one that led them into it. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Not only did he know the plan and allow the storm, but he was the one that led them into it. Not for a bad purpose, for an incredibly good purpose. We're going to see that. We're going to see how God graciously uses the storms of life. And there's great application for us right here, isn't there? We're talking about a physical storm that happened over 2,000 years ago. But really what we're digging at here is we're digging at those soul storms that enter into our lives every day, every week, every year. And if you know, you're not in one right now, well, don't worry, it's coming, okay? Not not to scare you, but to get you ready. It's, it's going to happen, okay? Um, there, there will be trials. There will be suffering. There will be hardship in this life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus made that well known to us, and we're not going to escape it. Okay, the escape from the storm is heaven, and that day's coming, but that day's not today. Maybe later today, but not right now at this moment. So storms, trials are coming And I think one thing that we miss here in this passage as we look at this, I think we miss just how frantic the disciples actually were. In order to kind of get this, you see one of the disciples here saying, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Think about that for a second. Wow, that's a pretty firm accusation. The Jesus who just healed sick people and taught the crowds and and is pouring his life out in ministry. Don't you care right now? We say say crazy things when we're fearful, don't we? Or angry or upset. 
This is part of it, but if you actually go and if you look at all the other accounts in the other Gospels, you actually see the disciples saying many different things. And when I kind of stumbled onto this and started looking at some of the other accounts, I was amazed at what the disciples say. And at first you're kind of like, well, what did they actually say? Did they, did they say, don't you care? Or did they say something else? And what you come to realize as you look at all of the Gospels together, you realize that this moment is so frantic, it's so crazy, that just imagine Jesus is laying there on the cushion and there are 12 other guys around him all yelling something at him, something along the same lines, but maybe slightly different. Listen to what uh, maybe Matthew said from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew may have said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And then another says, Master, master, we are perishing. And they're all yelling at the same time. And then right here in, in this book, presumably Peter, maybe, in the Gospel of Mark says, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? I think Rembrandt's picture that's up on the screen, his painting of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, captures this moment pretty well. Look at how frantic they are. Look at how fearful they are. And they're trying to do whatever they can do to just get this boat from capsizing. So often, we fail to properly understand the trials in our lives, don't we? So often, we blame the trials in our lives on the devil. Well, sure. You know, are demonic forces at work in our lives and around us, yes, we are spiritually embattled. We live, okay, in a world where there is spiritual warfare happening 24-7. But sometimes, sometimes I've caught myself doing this. I blame a trial on the devil when actually God brought it for my intended good to make me uncomfortable and to sanctify me in ways that I didn't want to be sanctified and to show me that I needed to change in ways that I didn't want to change. So, so often we, we do that. So for sure the adversary is at work and for sure the adversary has his hand in this trial, but behind the scenes there's a sovereign God who is working all things for the good of his people who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now we see this written all over scripture, don't we? Okay, we don't just see it in you know Romans chapter eight and that's an amazing place to go, but we see it you know in such Great illustrations throughout scripture. Think about um, some of the Old Testament characters. Think about Job for a second. Who allowed the storm? Satan had his hand in it, but God gave the permission. And God gave the extent of, of where it was to end. You may not take his life, God said to Job. And God saw Job through that storm. And God revealed himself to Job in a way that Job would not have known God otherwise. Just go and read the book of Job. It's such a fascinating read. Hard to understand at places, but amazing as you grapple with it. Think of Jonah. Think of Jonah. We had a series on Jonah a couple years ago. And Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Okay, God calls him to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, uh, Nineveh's that way uh, by land. I'm going this way by sea. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm fleeing. I'm not doing this. And uh, Jonah, what happens to Jonah? A shipwreck, a great storm. Huh, quite, quite the parallels here, right? Uh, the, the funny thing, though, is when you parallel the Jonah story with this story, Jonah's running away from God. Um, Jesus is going to do God's will. But uh, Jonah, 
tries to run away, and God brings trials into his life, not uh, to punish him, but to change him. And Jonah goes, he goes to the, the city, and they begin to repent, and then he gets all upset about that and bummed out about that, and he goes kind of off into the wilderness and uh, sits down in this little booth that he makes that doesn't sound all that great, and uh, this plant grows up that shades him from the sun, and he's so thankful, and he's so comfortable in that moment, and God appoints a worm to kill the plant. (laughs) Sometimes you're like, God's cruel. No, he's not cruel, okay? Get the picture of Jonah. God appointed the plant to grow up. Jonah did nothing for it. God appointed the worm to destroy the plant so that Jonah could see how much he relied on his own comfort and how much his own comfort, his own security, his own well-being was actually his God and how little God Almighty was actually his God. And God brought that into Jonah's life, not just to get him to do his will. God brought that into Jonah's life to purify him and to sanctify him and to change him from the inside out. And I bet you, if you were to ask Jonah after, he'd say, man, I'd never want to do that again. I'd never want to go through that again, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't trade it for the world with what God is doing in me. You know, think about Jonah. We've got Jonah, Job, you know, the J's, okay? Um, James, think about James. What does James say about trials? What does James say about storms? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of different kinds. If we were to put our hands up this morning, how many of us are there right now in a place where we're like, yeah, it's joy. Trials are joy. I, I love them. If there is, we'll have counselors around after the service. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. Okay, but, but what is J- uh, James hinting at here? James is hinting at, look at the bigger picture. Look beyond, look beyond the trial. Look at what the trial is producing in you. James is hinting at exactly what Paul's hinting at in Romans 5 when he says that suffering produces endurance and perseverance and steadfastness. And when steadfastness is there, it leads to hope. Okay, that's, that's what God is doing in the trial. That's what God is doing in the storm. That's what God is doing in the disciples right now in this moment. He is producing hope in them through trials, through suffering, through fear, through hardship. Why? Why? Because he loves them. He loves us, and he wants to grow us more and more to be like Jesus Christ. Think about one more example. Starts with a J. Can you guess what it is? There you go, Jesus. You got it. That's right. Yeah, think about the example of Jesus. Okay? The example of Jesus. Sometimes we put Jesus in his own category, and we should. He's God come in the flesh, but sometimes we put him so far in this category that we don't allow his suffering to relate to our life. Yes, he suffered and died for my sins, but but there's no real connection. Jesus, you know, didn't feel the suffering as much as I do. That would be such a wrong understanding because the book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted and he was tried just like we did. If anyone felt the full weight of suffering in this world, it was Jesus Christ because he was holy, he was pure, he was perfect. He suffered in ways that we can't even dream of because of his purity. Not to mention the physical ways that he suffered on the cross for us. Why? Because God is cruel? Because God is hard? No. Because God loved his son. And God knew 
that the only way to eternal life would be through the death of his son on the cross. And just take a look around this room right now and just think about around the world and just think about over the course of church history of all the incredible good that has been accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ. Think of how many souls will be in heaven for all of eternity. Now, do you think that suffering wasn't hard for Jesus? If you think it was somehow easier, you need to go back and you need to read. You need to read the moments before Jesus' trial and before he's arrested and read about him in the garden and sweating great drops of blood. This was an incredible, incredible weight. But God was doing all of this in Jesus to produce an eternal good that would go beyond measure. These are all pictures of what God is doing right here in this boat in the Sea of Galilee. This is a picture of what God is doing in our lives. I love how uh, Paul Tripp sums this up, and he, he says this. He says, in love, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. It is uncomfortable grace, but it is still divine, tender grace. Isn't that a great truth? So why, why, why does God allow trials in our lives? If we love him, shouldn't we be free and exempt from them in so many ways? No, he allows trials into our life, one, to test our faith. Two, he allows trials into our life to not just test our faith, to see what is in us, but in order to increase our faith in him. And then three, He allows trials into our life to demonstrate his faithfulness and to make us and to mold us and to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why God allows trials in our lives, to test our faith, to increase our faith, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to purify us, to sanctify us. But I want to just kind of catch on this little phrase that's right here in the text for us. Just... Take a quick look down right now, and you'll notice the phrase coming from one of the disciples. Don't you care? Just think about that for a second. What's that disciple saying right there? And it's, It's a moment of fear. It's a moment of anxiety. It's a moment of terror. And the things that fly out of our mouths, we just, we can't control, right? So often. But notice this accusation. Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't care. The Lamb of the world who will be slain for the sins of us all. He cares. He cares abundantly. Now we look at this and we're like, man, stupid disciples. They, man, they're so dumb, right? Well, take the mirror and turn it around and look at yourself. How often do you grumble about the good things but the hard things that God brings into your life? Let's start with something pretty small. I I do this all the time. I've caught myself doing this several times this week. Like, honestly, what happened to November? Like, how did we skip three months on the calendar, two months on the calendar, and land in February? This is not good for us. This is not fair. This is not Southern Ontario. Like, it, it just rolls out, doesn't it? Like... 
Yes, you're getting agitated already, right? But, but I grumble about the weather. I grumble about, you know, this. I grumble about how my kids are behaving and, and all of these different things that I just so often fail to see the bigger picture. That God is wanting to produce something in me that ease and comfort will not produce. He's wanting to produce the steadfastness in me. We grumble about so many different things. We grumble about our food. We grumble about our family. We grumble about our friends. And we don't have any friends. We grumble about the fact that we don't have any friends. Um, we grumble about our work. We grumble about, you name it, our car. We grumble about this. We grumble about our clothes. Anything. It, it, it surprises me at my own propensity to grumble. And if not outwardly, at least in my heart. And so often, I fail to grasp the significance of the flat tire on the side of the road, the car that won't start to get me to work on time, the child um, who won't obey even though I am such an awesome parent. (laughs) And I fail to understand that all the while God is putting his gracious finger on my life and pressing me where it counts and hurts the most to produce in me a work of his grace and a work of his goodness to make me more like Jesus Christ. I miss it so often. And I love the reminder from James that we heard a few minutes ago. Just step back. Just step back for a second. Take a look. Begin to count it joy. Begin to count it all joy when you encounter various trials of different kinds. Just allow the Lord to do that in you. He's doing that here in the boat, in the storm. He's doing that, I believe, in our lives to some degree. I love what Spurgeon says about this, just a a small quote from him. He says, God is is too wise to err, too good to be unkind. He says, leave off doubting and begin to trust him, for in so doing you will adorn the gospel and put a crown on his head. Just think about that. You adorn the gospel and put a crown on the head of Christ, your Lord and Savior, when we leave off doubting him and we begin to trust him in the middle of the storm. Now, Another thing that we need to catch here in this text is in, found in verse 39. I just kind of want to pick it up right there and walk through this again because there's a lot that happens in verses 39 through 41. A lot of application comes out of this. And so let's look down at verse 39 right now. So the storm is crushing in around them, rocking the boat back and forth. Water is flowing over the rails into the boat, filling it with water. And Jesus asleep on the cushion, the disciples yelling frantically at him, many different things. And in that moment, verse 39, and he awoke and he rebuked the winds and said to the sea, peace be still. And the winds ceased and there was great calm and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? As you read this passage, as you read this text right here, you kind of get the idea that the, the disciples don't really expect Jesus to do anything. You know, they... They're terrified, and you've probably been in this situation where you are fearful and you want everybody else to join in your fear with you, right? Um, They're terrified and they're yelling at him, but as you read the whole passage, they don't expect him to do what he did. 
So maybe they're there and they're expecting that Jesus, you know, in that moment will offer some sage words of wisdom to them that will help them to navigate through this storm based on his grand amounts of nautical experience. Maybe not. Maybe they want him to join in their misery with them. Possibly so. Maybe they want him to pick up an oar and begin to row to help keep getting the boat going in the right direction. But the one thing that they really don't expect, they don't expect him to do what he did, did they? Because they're blown away by this. Not in their wildest dreams did they expect him to stand up right where he was, rebuke the storm, calm, still, over, done. Now, this account of Jesus stilling the sea, is, it's ultimately such a, a show-stopping demonstration of power that it shocks the disciples. In this moment, they, they don't begin to realize, wow, this is really cool. Uh, Jesus, our buddy, has a lot more power than I thought he did. This is going to be beneficial for me. They don't think like that. In this moment right here, they understand the reality that up till this point, they have completely misunderstood his identity. They've missed it. This this Jesus, this teacher, this miracle worker, he's, he's not the person we thought he was because nobody can do this. In this moment, the weight of this fact comes crushing in on the disciples. They realize in this moment, not only is God over and above the storm and in control of the storm, but God is in the boat with them. Right then, they get it. They understand that that he's in the boat with them. We need to get this too. I just want you to put yourself in that boat right now. This boat is a picture of our lives being tossed back and forth on on the seas of life that are, that are rough, that are threatening to capsize the boat, put yourself in that boat right now. Just think, okay, I'm in that boat. And look around. Who's in that boat with you? A lot of terrified disciples. Yes. But the Lord, God Almighty, is in the boat with you. This is an awesome truth. He stands up. He rebuked the winds with his words. This may seem hard to believe, hard for us to understand, but it's interesting. The word rebuked here, um, literally it means to muzzle. Jesus stands up in the boat and he muzzles the winds like you'd muzzle a barking dog. Shh, done, quiet, peace. And this weight comes pressing in on the disciples because these disciples, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, um, fishermen or associated with a a fishing background, very acquainted with the Sea of Galilee, they would have understood the many verses of Scripture, okay, the, the very many verses of Scripture that refer to the only one who can stop the waves as being God, okay? It's only God who stops the waves. They would have understood this. They would have probably heard these verses all of their lives, I just want to bring you to a few of them. Earlier, we saw Jesus' humanity and the fact that he was asleep on the cushion. But right here, in this miracle, we see his deity. We see the fact that this is God in the boat. I just wanted to show you up on the screen a few scriptures. And notice what they say so that you don't miss this implication. So you don't just think I'm making it up. Notice what these scriptures say. The first one, Psalm 89 verse 9. The psalmist says this of God. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 93 verse 4. 
mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, is the Lord high and mighty. God is above the storm. Psalm 107, 29. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Psalm 65, verse 7, identifies God as the one who stills the roaring seas and the roaring waves. And this isn't just in the Psalms. We also see this, this same truth in the book of Job and in the book of Amos. This is a truth that is there in Scripture. And we think about this miracle, that Jesus stands up in the boat and he, and he calms the storm. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible captures this. I don't just read it for my kids, I read it for me too, it's good. Um, and it says that, it talks about the wind and the waves obeying him, and it says they heard his voice before. It was the same voice that spoke them into being. And we think about this miracle and we think, this is unbelievable, I can't possibly believe in this miracle. This didn't happen, these guys have to be making this up. I'm sure that it was windy and then it died down, and I'm sure Jesus said something, but it, it didn't happen like this. Listen, listen, if you, if you doubt there in that place, Go back. Go back. The greatest miracle in the Bible is absolutely the miracle of creation, where God speaks everything into being out of nothing with the words of his mouth. And if he can do that, then every other miracle after that is easy. And this is easy. If Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the radiance of God, that he is the exact image of God, that he is God come in human flesh. If, if that is true, then for Jesus to speak to a storm and for it to be muzzled like a dog is not a big thing. Wow. And if that's what Jesus can do with a raging physical storm, what can he do with the storms inside of our hearts and inside of our lives? He can speak into the storm of my life and of your life. He can speak the word saying, shh, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves will obey him. That is such an awesome reality, such an awesome hope for us right there. But listen, this isn't all that the Lord has to say to us right here. This isn't all that the Lord says. He, says. he doesn't just say, shh, peace, be still. He speaks to the storm that's outside of the boat. But then in that instant, he speaks to the storm that's going on inside of the boat. And Jesus presses in on the disciples right here in this moment. This is a beautiful picture of how Jesus interacts with people. He speaks to the circumstance, and then he speaks to the heart, asking such a, two penetrating questions. Notice what he says. He says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? That's a great question when you're in the middle of the storm. Why am I so afraid? Why am I so afraid? If God's on the throne, if God is with me in the boat, if his Holy Spirit lives and resides inside of me, if he has promised that the only thing that will be done to me is ultimately good for my eternal good, why am I so afraid? This is what Jesus encourages his disciples with when he tells them, do not fear what man can do to you. Well, what can man do to you? Man can take your life. But God gives eternal life is the implication. Now, he presses in with this question, why are you so afraid? And then immediately, he jumps to the conclusion. He answers his own question with another question. Notice this, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And then he says, have you still no faith? Where's your faith, disciples? Where is your faith after seeing the miracles, after seeing the demons cast out, after seeing the sick healed, after walking with me so many days? Where is your faith in this moment that this storm would overpower me? 
And Jesus says to them. And he presses this question to them. Notice what Jesus does here. He really pins, okay, fear against faith, doesn't he? The two butt heads together. He says, okay, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Meaning that if you had faith in this matter, disciples, you wouldn't be so fearful. I don't think Jesus is saying here that they wouldn't fear at all. But I think that he is saying right here very clearly that their fear is completely misguided. And if they had faith in this moment, they wouldn't be like, oh, great, it's really wavy out here. We're going to die in the, in the sea. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be like that. But in that moment, their faith would be moved to trusting in the Lord rather than fear moving them towards doubt. I want you just to notice this up on the screen right here. Um, so often, our, our fear is misguided isn't it? So often our fear takes control of us. So often our fear of natural circumstances, of things happening around us, things that in some cases, okay, should evoke fear in us, being on a lake in the middle of a storm, picking blueberries in a patch up north and noticing that there's a great big black furry thing that's in there with you also picking blueberries. That should cause some fear in you, right? And that fear is not a bad fear, unless it leads you to doubt. Notice that. But if it leads you to increased faith, that's a good fear, okay? Increased trust in the Lord. And what God is doing here is God is actually sanctifying the disciples' fear in this passage. That's what he's doing. He's taking their fear from a fear that's oriented around doubt, and he's moving it over here to a fear that is oriented around faith in the living God. Just notice that, okay? They are fearful about the circumstances of their life, rightfully so or wrongfully so. Rightfully so in one sense. Wrongfully so because they are so focused on those circumstances that they think that their only hope in those circumstances is themselves. And they miss the boat entirely because their hope in those circumstances is not themselves. It is the living God who is with them in the boat. And if their fear can drift from fear, doubt, over to fear, faith, that is going to be an awesome kind of fear. Where do I get this from in the text? Well, take a look back down with me here in this passage. The disciples are terribly fearful. They go to Jesus. They awake him. And Jesus stands up and he calms the storm. And what happens next? They fear even more. The storm on the outside of the boat is completely stopped, but there's a brand new kind of storm happening in the boat in that moment. That brand new storm is the storm that says, oh my goodness, God is in the boat with me. Oh my badness, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you in the boat with me. Who is this guy? Think about Isaiah. Think about Isaiah in the presence of, of God's glory and, and the fear and the trembling that is there. Is that a bad fear? No, that's a great fear. That's, that's an awe fear, a fear of God is so great, and God, but God is so holy too. Woe is me, Isaiah says. And what does God do for Isaiah? He cleanses him. He heals him. And he sends him. It's an awesome picture. If you haven't read that in a while, read Isaiah 6, and you'll get a great picture of holy, reverent fear. But listen, brothers and sisters, as we hit the end of this message, there's some things that we really need to take away for our own lives right here. There are times in our lives where we will walk through this world and it will seem like God is sleeping in the boat. 
just sometimes feels that way. It will seem like God has misplaced the plan. He's forgotten where we're going. There are times when we will come to conclude that based on what's happening around us and in us that God doesn't care. But I want to say to you today that he does care, that he hasn't forgotten the plan, that he hasn't left the boat. He's not sleeping at the wheel. Our God never sleeps. He never slumbers. There are times when it may seem like the storms of our life will never end, but they will. But they will. They might be long. They might be drawn out. They might go away and come back again, but they will end. He will carry us through because God ordains the beginning of the storm and he ordains its end as well. And at times, it totally may seem like he's left the boat entirely, but he hasn't. Why? Because as we heard earlier this morning, as we hear again right now, he has spoken to us. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is a promise that you can bank your life and your eternity on. That if you are in Jesus Christ, if you know him as Lord, if you put your faith and trust in him, so to speak, if you've gotten into the boat as a disciple, then he will never leave you or forsake you in any way. I love how David Pallison captures this about this passage. He says this, he says, when you set your fear, your awe, your hope in the right place, you become just the right size. Pride dissipates and the soul storms meet their master and he says, be quiet, shh, peace, be still. That is an awesome word. If you're in the middle of a storm today, allow the Lord to speak those words into your life right now. Invite him to do it. Invite him to speak into that storm saying, peace, be still. That doesn't mean that it's going to be taken away entirely. It means that he is going to give you the grace and the strength to walk through it. Here's what we need to take away from this passage right here. God in his wisdom is not surprised by the storms that encounter our lives. God in his goodness, he cares about the storms that enter our lives. And God in his power, he speaks into the fiercest storm saying, peace, be still. And through his kindness, he teaches us in the middle of the storm and he compels our adoration. He compels our worship and our trust in him. And God knows the plan. God allows the storm. God is with you in the boat. He will get you to the other side. That is for sure. Fix your eyes on the destination. Trust him for it. And Jesus Christ is a faithful captain. He will never fail you. He will get you to the other shore. And on that other shore, in that day, you will see him face to face. In that moment, you will be made like him. And in that moment, he will wipe every single tear from your face. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you are faithful, Lord. That you are absolutely trustworthy in every situation of life. Lord, whether we're in the middle of the storm right now or whether we're sailing in calm seas at this moment, Lord, and the storm is on the horizon, God, you are faithful, you are good to us, Lord. God, we look at all the difficulties that we face in this life, in this world, Lord, and it is so hard for us to consider them with joy, Lord. But God, we pray for the grace today to look beyond the storm, beyond the trial, to see that you are there and that you are doing a work in us, Lord, a work of refining that couldn't be done through any other means. And God, we thank you for this grace and this mercy. But God, we thank you that you don't leave us to endure these storms on our own, but Lord, that you are with us, not just near us or around us, but you're right there with us in the boat. 
You're right there with us in our lives, indwelling us and leading us by your grace. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the grace and mercy you've given us in Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.